Henry's mother taught him how to take care of the rabbits and chickens that they kept in a hutch near the chestnut tree. In the late summer, the two of them would eat apples and then push the chorus of the fencing and sit watching as the two species shared the remainders decorously with one another. In the morning, the hens liked to lay their eggs in the warmth of the rabbits had been sleeping, and they would squabble and squawk the rabbits out of their beds. This always made his mother laugh no matter how many times she saw it, and when he heard her laugh, it would make Henry laugh too. The garden path would be thick with vegetables, and when she gave him haircuts, she would keep the hair and show him how to tie it up into little bundles, which they would hang from the fence posts around the garden to keep the deer away from the vegetables. He would pick runner beans and bring them to her, and she would put them in jars and boil the jars and then put them on the shelf for the winter. When they would get to the tomatoes before the birds did, they would preserve those too, but not before they ate some with eggs and bread. That's singer-songwriter Josh Ritter, reading from his novel, Bright's Passage. Peter said to Paul, you know all those words we wrote Are just the rules of the game and the rules are the first to go But now talking to God is Laurel begging Hardy for a gun Got a girl in the war, man, I wonder what it is we've done. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Singer-songwriter Josh Ritter is an indie favorite with six albums under his belt. His last CD is the powerful and evocative So Runs the World Away. Because he's a musical storyteller, with songs that sing like short stories, it was perhaps only a question of time before he would turn to writing novels himself. But the premise of his first novel, Bright's Passage, was not nearly as predictable. In the world of the novel, Henry Bright was raised in a West Virginia cabin by a mother who scratches out a meager living. Sent to the senseless carnage of the First World War, he returns home followed by an angel. Now, this angel had saved Henry's life a few times during the war. But once Henry returns to these shores, the angel's advice is often less than stellar. The angel has led Henry to antagonize an unstable relative and his sadistic sons, who are now out for revenge. Henry sets out to escape the wrath of his kin, depending upon the often dubious suggestions of his angel to guide him to safety. This is a story about memory, luck, and the war that soldiers often carry home with them. And it's written with the lyricism that we've come to expect from Josh Ritter. Whether he's composing songs or novels, Josh is a compelling writer. I spoke with him in New York City and asked him to tell me what inspired Bright's Passage. Well, the two things that really inspired it were the look in the eye that I couldn't get out of my head of a man the kind of look in the eye that someone would have if they were sitting at a kitchen table putting together a jigsaw puzzle late at night. And whether they solved it or whether they didn't, no one would be there to notice. And the other thing that inspired it was a, a kind of a long-going and ambivalent relationship with uh, the idea of angels. Well, I was going to bring that up later, but as long as you brought it up now, let's mm-hmm. go with it. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're a wonderful, wonderful songwriter and performer, and angels are woven through many of your songs. Yeah. 
Yeah, they are, and I did not realize that. I never really thought about it until I, I was close to finishing this book, and usually I think that's good. You, the themes and your preoccupations and obsessions come out only later, which is, I think, how it should be. You, to be fully immersed in it, you have to like just write and then figure out later what's going on. And uh, angels are something I've been thinking about for a while, and I think that it was what's what always fascinates me about them, whether it's real or not, is, is not so important to me as their the idea that that when they show up, they tell you not to be afraid, but their advent into your situation is always the marker of something about to go terribly awry. For instance, Mary, they're minding her own business, this young girl, and then an angel comes and says, fear not, but you're also going to have a baby out of wedlock, and it's going to be the future king of heaven, and you know generations will call you blessed. And that would be something probably a little bit unsettling for a young girl to hear. You know, the angel of death, all these different angels that come and, and, and speak with absolute conviction about everything. But at the same time, the consequences of, of, of their commandments are always fairly dubious. You know. you know, I have to say, I am not religious at all, but I have a real fondness for Michael the Archangel, mm. who is keeper of the wind. Mm-hmm. That's his element. Yeah. And whenever there's a hurricane, I always think of him. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, there is something really beautiful about, you know, and I feel somewhat the same way. I'd say that that whatever it is, there seems to be a special and lasting place in our minds for angels. And I I love that. And, you know, for instance, there's Gabriel, who would come and is traditionally given the role of talking to Mary, is also the one who talked to Muhammad and uh, related the Quran to him, uh, you know, and told him to start to write. That's an amazing kind of confluence of, of traditions and they're really amazing creatures and and in Henry Bright's life whether whether Henry Bright is a truly religious person or not or whether the angel is real or the angel that that has come and, and inhabited his horse is talking to him whether that angel is real or whether it's just his mind trying to put the world back together is something that I was really really amazed and, and excited to write about you know it's interesting because this is exactly what I wrote I wrote it's interesting because I didn't know if this angel was magical realism that device or a symptom of Henry's breaking down or if the angel existed and it simply didn't matter to me thank you I, the main thing I wanted to ever stay away from was trying to clarify who the angel was and I believe that's most books that I read most stories that I love most songs that I really love always leave some room for the person that's that's taking part in it you know not every question should be answered there's a great book that I, I love called uh, by, by Stephen King called The Colorado Kid which is just a, a, a beautiful you know, mystery and I won't spoil it but it's uh, the questions are more important than the answers in the same way that when you're writing a song or singing a song or recording music, leaving out some harmony so that other people can sing, you know? Everybody likes to sing along, you know? So like, so don't fill in all the harmonies and don't give all the answers. And So whether the angel is real or not is one of the central parts of this, this book and maybe best not answered. You're a storyteller. Your songs tell stories. Yeah. What did it mean to move from the short form of mm-hmm. a song, the music sure. is telling the story as well, mm-hmm. to telling a story just with words, but in a longer form. Uh-huh. Right. Well, like, the essential, like, the rhythm of something is, is there, and, and the language and, and the rhythm of, of a voice is there in prose as well. I found it to be less of a, an enormous switch than I think people, people would assume. It, was, it felt very natural to me. I've always felt that, that songs are, are a thin partition holding back a lot of water. 
and like they bulge outwards with that with the story behind them and the secret and the, and the beauty of a good song is that it gives you a little bit of the idea of the weight of the world behind but that the world back there is, is for each of us to imagine in our own minds you know something like famous blue raincoat by Leonard Cohen it's, it's like it's like a novel it's by moonlight you know you see touches of, of the details but the rest is there for you to imagine and so going from a song to writing to writing this novel was basically trying to add more detail and more skin more blood onto the bones of, of what was already there and it was really a lot of fun but it was an active imagination which is always just really exciting and an adventure to be a part of you know to, to do was this ever going to be a song? It started as a song, in fact. And it started as a song about a guy that gets fickle and usually unimportant commandments from an angel. You know, go wash your car. And, and he doesn't know whether that's an, an angel talking or what. And he doesn't know why the angel's telling him to wash his car. You know, he asks for an answer and he doesn't get it. And, and he's not sure if he's being fit into a divine plan or just hearing a voice. And I thought, wow, you know, I, I have no place for this song right now. I just finished my, my record, So Runs the World Away. I was thinking, well, it's going to be a while before I record again, and, and who knows if it will even fit then. And I was just sitting there wondering what to do with the song. And so I, I started to write. I've been thinking for a while, you know, man, The River by Bruce Springsteen is a song that is, an, is a novel. It's all there. And I, I said it several times in interviews and, and like I was an expert. And, and then I started to write, and I looked at this song, and I thought, well, I'm just going to turn this into a novel. I'm going to go for it. I'm really going to go for it. I'm going to give it the time it really deserves. Well, Henry has such an interesting relationship with his angel. It's it's kind of cantankerous. I mean, yeah. I don't want to say he always does what the angel wants him to do, though he often does. But he fights back a lot and, yeah. and yells at the angel, like, what do you want me to do this for? How does this make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. I sort of thought of, of the angel and, and of, of Henry as kind of a Laurel and Hardy in the woods, you know? <laughs> these, these, yeah. these two basically clueless people who mean well, but very rarely get anything done. And if they get something done, it's by mistake. And I like that. And, and I think that these two, Henry Bright and, and the angel, uh, represent confusion, absolute confusion. You know, the angel thinks that he knows everything. And Bright, Bright is basically admits that he knows nothing and is often is willing to be led even though he knows that things may not work out quite right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make <laughs> sense. Tell me why World War One. One could argue you could put Henry in any war because sure. that's what war is. It really is madness. Yeah. Why that period most particularly? Well, it, it's, it started actually on the road. I've always thought if you're a reader and a writer, you have the chance to read whatever you want and just follow whatever interests you have for no reason. And that's just the most amazing. It was a great freedom. <laughs> uh, but my band and I started this thing. We're all readers in the band and, you know, real rock and roll types. And I started reading this book called The Proud Tower by, by Barbara Tuckman. And it's about the 25 years leading up to the eve of the First World War. She leaves the book off on the eve of the, of the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. And it blew my mind. I realized how little I knew about the First World War. What an amazing moment it was when suddenly, during these 25 years, we had decided as a human species that we had figured out time. We'd figured out science. We'd figured out health and religion and a theory of the races and class and, and all these things that were figured out and nailed to the wall and done. And then the First World War happened and we were suddenly cast adrift in a nightmarish new place that no one had ever been in before. We started the First World War with horses and we ended with planes and poison gas. 
and whole new ideas of what a nation could be. And I began to read more and more, and then I started to read the autobiographies of soldiers who came back, British, Canadian, American soldiers who came back and, and talked about their experiences. It was one of the first times that normal, you know, lower middle class or lower class people I mean, we're writing. We're writing about stuff. And they had a lot of things to say that were not in military history books. And it was just a fascinating and incredible time of reading. And as I was reading, Henry Bright's character started to fall into place a little bit. It's not a linear story, or perhaps it is, but there's a lot mm. of going back. It's almost there are three trajectories. Yeah. There's Henry as a child, there's Henry in France, and then there's present-day Henry. Yeah, I was dissatisfied with the straight-through narrative because when is our life ever like that? Henry's memories are real scenes in this book. They don't always add up to anything but a memory, but they're still important for who he is and that he's not just some kind of rube. But what I liked about it as well was because... It, of course our memories are always with us. I mean, yeah. there they are. You might not see it, but there it is. Yeah. It's sort of like the angel. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Henry's remembering the war. Mm. It reminded me of Wilfred Owen's poetry. Oh, yeah. Just so visceral. One of the things that I was really, really touched by and impressed by was the beauty with which people wrote about, about these experiences. There was a, a book by a man named William Orpin. He wrote a book called the On An Onlooker in France, and he was a sketch artist, a British sketch artist, who was given free reign to walk and, and travel through the war and sketch people. And he was in trenches, and, and he was a beautiful artist, but his writing was was just so so gorgeous, and you notice the little things, the things you can't read about in, in textbooks about the war. These things that were not about, about leaders or, or generals, they were about the, the way the dirt clotted or the way the bunkers were built or you know, just being able to look up in the sky and see nothing and how important that was to people. And I just thought that, that those moments are, are so poetic that the only thing you can do is just put them down and hope that the poetry comes out of the, the thing itself and, and, and not the description. There's also a scene in which a particularly horrific thing happens at a farmhouse mm -hmm. that you allude to. Other soldiers talk about it. We see somebody looking at it, and we see Henry's response to it, but you never tell us what it is, Yeah, which I liked. Because A, obviously it engages our imagination as well, and then there's a way in which you can only imagine in the midst of all this horror that they take for granted how horrible something must be for them to see it as horrible. Yes, yeah, in a war, yeah. yeah. I've always loved writing that, that gives me credit for my own imagination, you know, and like a few places where that's really, really great. I think writing about sex, for instance, is, is way better when you can imagine some of it <laughs> yourself. And the same with most violence or anything that is truly stupendously horrifying is much better written if I, if it leaves me room for the horror to be what, what I imagine to be the scariest thing. It's almost as though what you want to do is describe the shadow of it. Yes, yeah. Or, and or, leave the details to the reader. Yes, and I, you know, I, tried, I tried writing things. This first novel, it was such a learning process, and a lot of it was realizing how often that the extra detail is the thing that can tear down 
the rest of it. And, and, and leaving out that extra thing can be just so exciting. Is that true, too, for writing songs? Absolutely. Drawing, drawing it in a little bit? Definitely. It's concision. I just think the concision in songs or in almost any writing that I can think of, concision is, is the key. I mean, there's so much that can be said, but really like letting other people have room to like fill in. For instance, not, not going into great detail about describing a character so that you can give somebody the ability to imagine their own character. You know, I definitely imagine what Henry Bright looks like, but I never oh, wanted yeah. to describe who he what looked like, and I just think that, to me, that makes sense. But songs and novel, in my, in my limited experience with novel writing and my, my larger experience with writing songs, is that no matter how long or short a song is, every single word matters, and, and that's, where the, that's where the fun and the uh, frustration sometimes comes in, you know. Well, let me ask you, since you've written Bright's Passage, do you find that you read differently? Absolutely. I, I always figured that I was a fairly omnivorous reader, and everything from Harlequin to the Bible, you know, and whatever is in front of you, you know, who knows what will come out of it. I've always felt like reading is the only way that I get ideas, one of the most major ways for me to get ideas for writing songs and otherwise, and I've always picked up books hoping that something will come out of it. But yeah, writing this book has has made me realize that there is some stuff that is just so bad that it's it's not going to help me to put it in my mind, you know? Like just like there is some food that is delicious and you don't mind eating it sometimes, but if if you if you try to survive on a diet of it, you'd you'd pass out eventually. I think of some books as being like beer. I'm on an airplane, I'm at the dentist's office and I pick it up, I like it and I'll never think about it again. And that's yeah. what I mean. It's like beer. Tastes real good going down. It goes right through you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does not stay at all. Yeah, it's fine. And I would never be one of those people to say, like, this book is bad, that there is some sort of hierarchy of literature. There's just stuff. No, because sometimes like, you just want a beer. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And sometimes you, you love a book just because you were able to finish it, that you somehow conquered the book, you know? There are books like that. Or what makes you want to go back and read a book over and do over again? Do you reread? Again? Absolutely. Yeah, I do, yeah. too. I'm always rereading. Master and Margarita, uh, The Shining, Paperboy by Pete Dexter. Those are all books that I was... I've, really excited to read over and over again. Why they come back in your mind is such an interesting thing. Now, when you first went off to college, you were like the science guy. Yes. What happened? What was the the pop? The, the, the big pop. There was a spiritual gnawing, but then the, the, the large break came with organic chemistry, and, and I realized that even if I had wanted to be a scientist that it was not going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, there. Yeah, maybe if I'd really wanted to, I would have been able to pass organic chemistry. But I really made my peace with it. I mean, science and, and, and art and religion, they're, they, I think they're just engines for asking questions. And the beauty is, and the joy and what we're here on, on Earth trying to do is ask questions. Even science will admit that if we were to ask science right now, that, that 99% of the time is still not all the time. And so no question can always be answered definitively. And that's a beautiful thing to to relax into, to give up all your totally strongly held convictions and, and just learn a little bit while you're around, you know. You grew up in Moscow, Idaho, and the city's motto is Heart of the Arts. Yeah. <laughs> is it? Well, yeah, I, I would like to think of us as the as the Paris of America, but there's other people that wouldn't agree. But I do think it is the heart of the arts in our area. Like, I grew up in an amazing place. It's like it's the origins of the Appaloosa horse and, and chickpeas and lentils and wheat and, and forestry and fishing and, and all this amazing landscape there. And I was really lucky to, to grow up there. It's a beautiful place. 
And lots of arts. Yes, yeah. Yes. And the great thing about like that type of art where you're in the middle of farmland and, and mountains and, and there's a long ways to a big city is that you have to make your own. And my brother and I are both very lucky that we, you know, we lived way out of town and we only had two TV channels, one that came on at like 8 in the morning and the other went off at 12 at night. And, and we had to make up our own entertainment. And that's where the, that stuff gets really great. I mean, I've seen some really pretty astounding theater by people in, in my hometown who just love doing it and you know I, I think that that's in, it's, it's incredible if you if you if you really want to entertain yourself to, to do it yourself and that's why I think I'm a writer your last CD so runs the world you, you said it took you almost two years and that it was a really difficult mm, yeah work what was going on you know I, I moved from Idaho to, to New York which was one thing it was a painful uh, move in some ways and, and, and difficult. Just the amount of garbage trucks going outside my house at, at three in the morning was like they had parades out there. <laughs> you know, just that alone, I'm used to hearing nothing out there. And so that was one thing. But then there was also, I'd go, after like five records, I'd, I'd gotten to this point where I thought, well, it was almost a crisis of confidence. I thought, well, I feel like I've written about most things. That and where is my where is my new thing to say? Where is it? Like, and I was gotten really worried about it. And I was writing a lot, but none of it felt good. It, it wasn't writer's block so much as a crisis of confidence in what I was writing about and saying and how was it different and how was it important to me in any way. Then I hit on the idea that while I'd been writing a lot of stories, I'd never allowed something truly terrible to happen to any of my characters in these songs. Things happened, and sometimes they were bad, but something not, not terrible. And so I started writing songs like Folk Bloodbath, where I killed everybody off. Lewis Collins took a trip out west when he returned, little Delia'd gone to rest. The angels laid her away. Lewis said to Delia, that's a sad thing with life. There's people always leaving just as other folks arrive. The angels laid her away. And when the people heard that Delia was dead All of them gentlemen They dressed in red The angels laid her away You know, all these different characters from folk songs I brought them all together And each one of them killed each other And it was fun, you know, to write that stuff and then, Or a mummy that falls in love with an archaeologist and, and, and they become cursed Or a guy that loves his ship And has to burn it down in the Arctic to stay alive and that was when it kind of clicked in for me. That's when this, this novel came out, was that I realized things have to happen to go awry for, for there to be a real story, you know. And I, I have to be as happy killing my characters as I am having them alive. And uh, I've had some good days killing off characters. I've, I've been chipper afterwards, you know. So, uh, <laughs> New York does that to people. Totally, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, Bright's Passage, were you writing this simultaneously with working on the CD? It was in my mind, but I started it just as I finished the CD. But the tap was still on, and I was still writing. So I just sort of switched over the medium. And I was on the road. I went on the road at this time, and, and I was with my band, and... and get up in the morning on the bus, I would put on my headphones, I would listen to Radiohead, and I would write, you know, and for, for an hour and a half a day or so. So Radiohead is, was your personal soundtrack kid as you a. wrote? Yeah, <laughs> Kid A, yeah. Great record, so good. There are obvious differences between performing mm -hmm. and writing. Mm -hmm. like you, solitary, 
yes. public. Can you talk about moving from one to the other? Sure, yeah. Well, I think that a lot of times the little adrenaline shot I get that keeps me going is the chance to kind of whip the sheet off the statue, you know? And that's what performance is, playing shows every day. And it's to show, like, whoever's coming to your show in whatever town you're in, what you've been doing with your time since the last time you saw them and what you've been doing with the, the money they paid to come to a show or the money they paid for, to buy a record. And that's, that's the trust that you have. And, it's, and it is performance that's very real every day to day. With a, with a book, it's different. It's belated. It's still performance. It's performance that you're, you're working really hard on for one show. It's all coming down to this one show. And, and somebody sits down, they take the book to the beach, they read the book in, in an afternoon or, or a couple afternoons, and that was the show. And you, you have to hope that you're, you're spending their time really, really making it good because you can't necessarily go back and give them the same story with improvements. Well, that's the thing that's so interesting, I would think, because, okay, so I have the book, and you're not there. When I go and I've heard you perform, and I love watching you perform, mm. you look like you're having a blast, Thanks. There, <laughs> which is great to see. But when I have the book, you have no idea... Right. What my response is, whereas as a, as a performer, of course, you know how to read an audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can change you can change up your set list. You can stop in the middle of a song if you feel like you need to. But with a book, it's, it's far different. And, and I guess that one of the things that really propelled me into doing this for the first time was, was a feeling of, you know, I wanted to take some more chances in my writing. And, and no matter what, I feel if, if you get too comfortable doing one thing, you, if you cleave to it too much, it, it can stunt you as, as a person. I always think that it's interesting with, with outlaws, like Wild West outlaws. There's always one thing that they're good at, you know? <laughs> the, the outlaw gangs, Robert, there's always one guy that's only really good at doing the safe. And then there's the British guy, and he's really good at talking and gambling. And then there's the guy who's the sharpshooter or the guy who's the drinker, you know, or one guy who's good with his fist. But they're always only good at one thing. To me, that's, that's when you start to make the wrong decisions in your life, when you start to, like, cleave yourself to one thing. And that, to me, is is why I really wanted to write. I really wanted to be nervous about something, really nervous about something, and I was really nervous about it. Josh Ritter, thank you so much for giving me your time. Thank you so much for having me here. Oh, this is it's awesome. my pleasure. Thank, thank you. Awesome. I'm six feet under the clay The angels laid him away That was singer-songwriter Josh Ritter. We were talking about his novel, Bright's Passage, which recently came out in paperback. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Girl in the War by Josh Ritter, from his CD, Animal Years. Excerpts from Folk Bloodbath by Josh Ritter, from his CD, So Runs the World Away. Excerpts from Come and Find Me by Josh Ritter, from his CD, The Golden Age of Radio, all used courtesy of Pythias Recordings. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, we talk about Edgar Allan Poe with mystery writer Laura Lipman. To find out how Artworks and communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NAA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. The angels laid him in. Delia, 
in the churchyard deep with Lewis Collins at her head, stack of Lee at her feet. The angels laid them in.